This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotny. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio. This week is episode number 501, and we welcome back Nate Adams. We're going to, Nate the House Whisperer, that is, Adams, uh, for part two of an interview we did with him probably about a month back now. Um, we're going to talk about the Home Comfort Book, and uh, we, we went through the basics the last time. This time, we're going to focus more on HVAC systems. Before we do, we want to make sure we thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. Danny Greenblatt, uh, EnviroTech Air up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts area, got the correct answer to our question from last week, and uh, that was identifying 2 squared times 5 to the third as the prime factorization of the number 500 for our 500th episode. The IAQ Radio question for today has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions for odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. The question is, what were silver bullets originally used for? All right, so we're going to get back to um, our interview we did with Nate last last what about last month I guess it was Nate. Nate is a um, the owner of Energy Smart. They started out as an insulation contractor for existing homes. They've involved into doing comprehensive home performance retrofits. The projects are anywhere between a simple attic insulation job and a deep energy retrofit. The projects are sweeping in scope. He has a thorough planning process that we'll go through here as we review what we talked about on the last show. And um, also, Nate's a, a blogger, and uh, he's got uh, he's an author. He's got the Home Comfort Book. We sent out a link on our, our show announcement. Uh, I, I really encourage people to get a copy of the book. It's really uh, excellent stuff. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. It's good to be back. Good to have you here. All right, let's put up that PowerPoint we have you on. We're going to do a quick review here. Let's first show the copy of the book, the Home Comfort book. Uh, that's a nice, nice graph. What? Well, I, I, we don't have time to go into where you got that graphic from, Nate, because I know we've got a lot to cover. Go to the next one, if you would, John. All right, so the book starts with Home Comfort 101. We talked a little bit about that, and then it goes into – it's actually a really – it's a lengthy chapter. It's about 70 pages, and there's quite a bit of good information in there, including a lot of the background information we discussed on the last show. This week, we're going to go into HVAC 101 and 102, and hopefully we'll get another show where we talk more about insulation types. Let's go to the next one. All right. This is a, Nate, why do you throw this graphic in here? I think this is a good, good way to go over some of, the, uh, some of the things we talked about on the last show. Yep. So this is a, a graphic. Uh, I, I borrowed it from another cartoonist, but then uh, had it adjusted to kind of fit. And basically, uh, when it comes to looking for solutions, most people are looking for a simple solution. The problem is it tends to be wrong. And so you end up burning time and money uh, trying that path. The, the better solution to complex problems, like what home performance and home comfort yeah, problems comfort. usually are, is to take the complex but correct path, which is kind of slow plotting, do your reading, do your homework, and then execute so you don't have to redo anything. Okay, next. So here's your four tenets. You want homes to be, you want comfort, health, durability, and efficiency. Any, anything you'd like to add on this? Well, those are the buckets that most problems that uh, we solve and that clients come to us with uh, fall into. 
you know, if you have a room that is any more than two to three degrees different from the rest of the house, that's a problem. Uh, if you've got a kid with asthma or you have indoor allergies, that's a health problem. Uh, if you have ice dams or water in the basement, that's a durability problem because water kills buildings. So uh, if you have a problem, the odds are they fall into those buckets. That's the, the idea. All right. Next. And control. We want to control air, heat, and moisture flow. That's the key to everything is controlling these things, and I think that's pretty well said right here. Nate, anything you'd like to add? Uh, there's two sides to it. So you need to control uh, air, heat, and moisture flow in and out of the building. So that's where air sealing and insulation comes in, which we'll touch on. So that has to be done first. But once the house is reasonably tight, like say a boat that will actually float without sinking, uh, then you have to deal with the air, heat, and moisture inside the house. And that's the job of the HVAC or the heating, ventilation, and cooling system. Another example is a car. And I like what we're going to talk about HVAC today, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. You use a car's HVAC system as a great illustration of what you'd like to see in homes. And I think, you know, cars are typically pretty tight, you know, because they, they have good gasketing and sealing and they have to be aerodynamic. So I think that's a great example that you use in the book. Let's go to the next one. All right. The five priorities. I don't think we can emphasize enough the first three, right? They're all air sealed. <laughs> yes, they are. And then you insulate, and then it's the right HVAC. I, you know, I understand air seal, air seal, air seal, number one. Um, why did you choose insulation over HVAC as your next step? Typically, air sealing and insulation go together. So uh, if you're going to pull insulation out of an attic so you can air seal it, you're not going to leave the attic empty. Uh, or if you're using spray foam, you get insulation and air sealing simultaneously. So they, they just generally go together. Um, but it depends on the house. So it, you may just spend time tightening and not adjust insulation levels. That's possible. Well, there are times when adjusting the insulation levels are, are more difficult. Like I, I live in a log home here and, um, it's difficult in my walls anyway. Now my, you know, my roof, my ceiling, I obviously I can do more there, but uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's interesting that insulation uh, and we'll talk more about insulation as we go along. Let's go to the next one. All right. Now, here you go. This is your, we, we talked about this, your blower door. Most people are familiar with it. You're aiming for one to one or better. You want to add on to that? Sure. Well, the one-to-one -one ratio is the leakage. So it's the, the number on the blower door, which is in cubic feet per minute at 50 pascals, which is geeky, but you don't really need to know, uh, compared to the square footage of the house. So typically, if you can get a house close to a one-to-one -one ratio, so if you have a 2,000 square foot house that has a 2,000 blower door, um, that house is likely to be controllable. Um, it's not necessarily good. That's a B minus, C plus, something like that. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a really good start for getting the house under control. Let me ask you this, Nate. I've got a friend living down in Virginia. He listens to the show, regular Vic uh, Cafaro. And, you know, I can imagine what Vic would ask. First question. Well, the first question you probably get from a lot of people when you say you want to have a blower door done. What should I expect to pay for this blower door testing? Um, so that's a good question. And the answer as to all building science questions is it depends. Uh, <laughs> you, you likely have a, a utility program where you can get a blower door test done pretty inexpensively, oftentimes like 25 to a hundred dollars. Um, but you may use it for the blower door number, but that's not likely to help you solve the problem because they're typically going to give you a big laundry list of stuff to do with no pricing and little prioritization. Uh, and it won't be aimed at solving problems that you care about. So typically you want to start with an independent energy auditor or maybe an HVAC company that does this sort of thing um, and start working through the logical process. Uh, of solving the problems rather than just basically paying for an x-ray but not having any idea to do what to do with the x-ray uh, results okay. and that that you're looking at like two to three hundred dollars usually okay like. that's what i'm wondering because I, I can imagine some people would be interested just in knowing hey what's my blower door number they see this one to one's good you know two to one's not so good I'd like to see how I'm doing here uh, for two or 300 bucks. I think we could do that. If it was more like five, six, $700, then, you know, people start to have second thoughts. Uh, all right, let's go to the next one. 
Here, I, I just like this because I think we have to set up the discussion on HVAC by talking a little bit about heat transfer. And I just I like your, your graphic you had in the book here. I think it does a great job. You want to add anything to that? Well, sure. Um, so I, I kind of borrowed this. Um, shoot, I'm trying to remember the author's name, Henry, I think it was, I remember him. Uh, he was told that he measures energy with a spoon, um, but he had a, a great book uh, and he had a couple of illustrations on how heat transfer worked. And I'm like, you know what? I think we could do this all with a coffee mug. So there's three different ways that a coffee uh, or that uh, a coffee mug can be used. So there's three different heat transfer mechanisms. Uh, there's conduction, which is through solids. So if you put your hand on the coffee cup, the heat from the coffee transfers through the coffee cup and into your hand. Uh, so that's through solids. Uh, convection is heat transfer through fluids, which can be air or water. So if you put your hand on top of the, the coffee cup, uh, you'll feel the steam heat convecting into your hand. Um, and then the most important one when it comes to human comfort is radiation. That's about 60% of human comfort, uh, which we're gonna spend a lot of time on moving forward. And so if you have a hot coffee cup and you hold your hand a half an inch or an inch away, you'll feel the heat from that cup uh, jumping through the air into your hand. Uh, and that is radiation. Um, so that's 60% of human comfort and we'll be digging into that next. Absolutely, next. Here we go. Mean radiant temperature. I don't think we spent, I don't remember, Nate, we didn't spend much time on this with the first show, did we? We, we talked This a wasn't even in it. I don't think we even made it uh, to this. There's, there's a lot of other concepts to... For, for the IAQ folks, too, this is a very important concept, you know, the, the mean radiant temperature, because comfort issues are oftentimes an indoor air quality complaint that we get. Uh, go ahead, Nate. Tell, tell listeners a little bit about this graphic. So the easy way to think about this is imagine you just came home from work. It's 5.30 in the afternoon. It's the middle of the summer. The sun's been beating on your house all day, and it doesn't have a lot of insulation. So the ceiling above you is very warm because the attic is 130, 140 degrees. The wall has been warmed up by the sun, and the heat from that wall is radiating through into uh, the space. So even if the air conditioner has been running and the, the house is cool, so say it's 70 degrees, but because it's oversized, it's not running much and it's not doing much dehumidification, the humidity levels are high. So you're, you're, you're sweating because humidity is high and you are feeling uncomfortable because the ceiling and walls are radiating heat at you. Uh, so you find yourself very uncomfortable. So mean radiant temperature is uh, the concept of the average surface temperature around us. And we don't realize it, but our bodies are really, really good at measuring this. We have 165,000 temperature sensors in our skin. Um, and so if you note, like, well, right now, my, the back of my foot is a little bit cold, my right foot, not my left. So if you start thinking about it, you can figure out what parts of you are warm or cold. Those are the temperature sensors. So if we can make those happy by making the surfaces around us as close to the same temperature as possible and in a, a, a temperature range that's good for human comfort, uh, we can have a happy occupant. But that takes insulation and air sealing on one side and HVAC on the other. You know, this is a topic that Robert Bean speaks about all the time. He's, he's the guru on that. And by the way, we did have uh, Robert on a show years ago. We're going to have to get him back. I'll, uh, maybe in the blog, I can put a link to that show. But he's, he's very big on this whole idea of mean radiant temperature and comfort in buildings. But let's go to the next slide here. All right. So here we go now. What we've done is, is you've made some changes to try and um, help with the, the mean radiant temperature. Maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about what you've done here and, and how it's helped. Sure. So now this building has been air sealed and insulated. So the, the walls are insulated and then the heat from the walls is not transferring through as quickly. The attic has been air sealed and insulated. So the heat's not transferring there. So the, uh, the ceiling and the wall is no longer very warm. And then because you have the right sized HVAC, it's running a lot. So you want it to run at low levels. Uh, think highway miles. You don't want on, off, on, off, on, off. You want it to run at low levels all the time. And if that's happening, it's constantly washing cool air across the surfaces of the house. 
which keep them at a much more similar temperature. Uh, what we find is after we do these projects, we have clients that used to have thermostat set points in the summer in the 68 to 70 range, maybe 72, and very consistently uh, everyone says they increase their thermostat set point. So they go 74 is kind of the typical low, and we've got a couple clients that are comfortable at 80. And that's because they have, number one, the right equipment, number two, the air-sealed and insulated house. And because that right equipment is dehumidifying a lot, you can be comfortable at higher temperatures as long as it's not humid. And I think later, or maybe now, we're going to talk about those swing seasons when your air conditioning may not be running very much. And as a result, you're not getting the dehumidification. And, and do you want to talk about that now, or should we save that for a later point? Oh, let's dig in in a few minutes. All right, let's do that. Five priorities we talked about. Air seal, air seal. Oh, here we go. Um, let's go to the next one. Okay, and once you have air sealed and insulated, suddenly the new HVAC system you were looking at is very likely to be too large. You, you say in the book that, that most HVAC systems are too large. Um, I believe that's a quote from the book or something similar to that. Close and enough. I think a lot of people don't necessarily um, wouldn't, wouldn't immediately agree. You know, they would think, how can that be? Um, and how often would you say HVAC systems are oversized in the typical home that you've looked at at least? 99% or more. Almost always. Yeah. Are there any... I know you come from you, you follow the home performance industry and you, you're very familiar with the research they've done. Is there any research on that? Is there something in the literature that shows that absolutely, you know, this percent of homes are oversized when it comes to HVAC? Um, I don't know that there is. Uh, perhaps somebody in chat can chime in if there's something that someone knows about. Uh, the, the curse is to understand if it is oversized or undersized. You, you have to do a load calculation, and load calculations typically are heavy. Uh, so like a manual J heating load calculation, which we'll touch on in a minute, uh, oftentimes you can uh, discount that by 50% in a house that's somewhat airtight and have it still heat the house. So even if uh, the equipment is sized to the industry standard calculation, which is a manual J, it's still too big. Um, which is why it's so big. So the, the, the heating calculation for manual J literally has three fudge factors. There's a fudge factor on the fudge factor and then a fudge factor on top of that just in case. Um, and it's because they don't want to get a callback on a day that goes to five below or below design temperature because the house isn't heating. But what they end up doing is sacrificing comfort in that house literally 99% of the year, which we'll get into more later. Because of the peaks. All right, let's go to the next one here, John. Oop. There we go. Don't be fooled. You have a terrible furnace. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the cover from HVAC 101. Um, uh, uh, it, it, this is just meant to shake people um, and make them begin to question what's going on. Uh, so it, what you need to do when you're talking uh, a furnace, and particularly if you're talking a, a home performance project, you need to size for where you're going and not where you are, which is what that last slide was talking about. Uh, so if you are going to do a home performance project, the best time to do it is at equipment replacement time, uh, because whatever the project you do, the odds of you having the wrong HVAC post-project are basically 100%. Hmm. All right, let's go to the next one. Here we go. So we're in the HVAC chapter now, 101, six things you should do. Load matching, filtration, dehumidification, fresh air, right place at the right time, and humidification. Let's look at them one at a time here. Um, let's start with the, unless you want to comment on the overall slide here, Nate. No, ask questions. All right, let's go. So you use the car here as a great example of the kind of things. Go back one if you would for a moment. The car has the load matching capabilities. It's got some filtration in it. Um, well, I guess there's some dehumidification too. Uh, it's got it's air conditioner button. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. You, Fresh, anytime you, want. you can bring in outdoor air if you want. You can recycle, you know, recycle the air on the inside of the car if you want. 
Uh, you've got it at the right place at the right time because you can move your little uh, dampers around and push air wherever you need it. You can put it on your feet. You can put it up on the defrost cycle. Um, uh, no, no humidification in the car, right? Yep, that's the only one that it doesn't do. So uh, I chuckled in thinking about my wife's first car, which was this 1992 Corolla that had 130,000 miles on it. We bought for 500 bucks and it had holes in it uh, big enough to put a softball through, uh, rust holes. Um, yet that little tiny car that was really cheap had a better HVAC system than 99% of U.S. homes. Why? Why don't we have better HVAC systems in homes? Um, a number of reasons, but uh, the, the free quote is definitely one big reason for it. Uh, and also not coming at uh, problems, looking to solve problems. So if, if you're looking for price first, you are going to make sacrifices that you don't realize that you're making. Tell me about more on the free quote. So free quotes, if you're going to get three quotes from a uh, from different HVAC contractors, they have to limit how much time they spend designing the system for your house. So they're probably not going to run a really good load calculation. They're not going to do a blower door test and air leakage is 30 to 70% of uh, heating and cooling load. So if they don't know the blower door, their uh, heat load calculation, even if they do one, is going to be wrong like with almost 100% certainty. Uh, but because you're getting a free quote and the odds are, I mean, at best they're going to get a third of the jobs if you're getting three bids, uh, they can't spend a ton of time on the upfront uh, bid and specification and uh, you know, helping you understand what you need. They need to get to your house, give you a number and move on to the next one. Uh, so it's far better to slow down and pay for help. We get this, uh, look at it, give an idea, okay, one ton, two ton, three ton, four ton, and then uh, let's put it in. Why, why of, of the other reasons that a car has better control? So you've got variable speeds in cars. You've got, um, you know, again, you, you've got a lot of more options with cars. Why don't we until recently, why had we not until recently seen that more often in residential? Is it more difficult to design these, to manufacture them? To Is it that much more costly? Well, it's considerably more expensive. I mean, just to use round numbers, um, a cheap furnace and a cheap air conditioner are about three grand a piece. Um, when you start so going in, Installed. Yeah. Okay. Um, and somebody's going to crucify me for saying that, but it's the ballpark number in your mind. That's, that's where cheap equipment kind of lives. Yeah, um, my brother used to throw them in for three grand. I'll go along with that. Yeah. So when you go to the more expensive equipment, one of the issues that I see with HVAC pricing is uh, a lot of HVAC contractors will double or triple the cost of the equipment. So uh, if it's a thousand dollar piece of equipment, they'll sell it for 3000. If it's a $2,000 piece of equipment, they'll sell it for six. So that looks $3,000 more expensive when it's really only $1,000 more expensive. So if instead of loading their, uh, their cost and their margin into the equipment, they loaded it into the labor side, it wouldn't look as expensive to use the better equipment. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at three different furnaces, one's 3,000, one's 5,000, and one's 7,500 bucks, um, you're probably not going to pick the $7,500 one, where if they priced it different, that might be 5,500. Mm -hmm. um, and so they would sell more, they'd get a nicer piece of equipment installed that would provide better comfort. Uh, so that's one side of it. The other side is the better equipment is just more expensive. Um, and typically people are just thinking, well, a furnace is a furnace, so whatever. Um, and so that's a lot of what my book sets out to educate people on is it's worth spending more money on better equipment if you want better comfort. And I, I, I should say, you know, most of the time, I think when my brother was installing, it was mostly just a furnace uh, because we live in a very, you know, more of a heating climate, although at times he'd put in both. And um, I would imagine it was more like four or five grand then when you put in yep. a furnace and an air conditioner. All right, let's go to the next slide. And, you know, the other thing with these undersized and oversized, uh, well, okay, let's let's. 
is this the next one you wanted to go to? No, here we go, right? Good MRT. I think we covered that one, John. Yep, I, th I think that one works now. All right. So right-sizing the equipment. This is where I wanted to go. The way most people shop is like buying a maternity wear on the off chance that you may get pregnant and will actually fit one day. Explain what you mean by that. Well, that's my buddy Griffin Hagel that said that. Uh, I mean, that's a, it, it, does Dottie have maternity wear in her closet right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably not. Um, uh, and it, it, the curse is most people are buying furnaces and air conditioners worried about the worst day of the year um, when they really should be thinking more about the meat of the year, which is much more moderate temperatures, uh, which I think is the next slide, actually. All right. Yeah, here we go. Yep, there we go. So well, this is Cleveland, but, uh, you know, you can think of your own area. Yeah, so it wherever you live, the, the chart's going to look kind of like this. So this is a chart of outdoor temperatures by how many hours per year uh, the temperature is in a certain bin. So they're five degree bins. Uh, so like uh, you can see there's, there's a little tiny bit of time spent in the zero to minus five Fahrenheit bin. Um, but the majority of the time is going to be spent at moderate temperatures. So you can see that all the tall bars in this are between 30 degrees and 75 or 80 degrees. That's where we spend almost the entire year here. So wherever you live, it, it, this, the bars are going to move up or down a little bit, but it's going to be the same general idea. Um, that is what we should really be paying attention to because we need to be able to match how much heat or cool your HVAC is putting out to what the house needs um, and not just be full throttle. So if I'm matching it to what the house needs and then, you know, I've got to, I still have to worry about those extremes on either side here, the zero degree days, the 100 degree days. Will the system that you recommend they put in that's right size for those other times of the year, will that help? Will, will it do the job on those days when it's down in the zero or up over a hundred? So the answer there is it depends, but yes. Uh, so, but the thing you want to think about is, what is the end of the world here? Um, if when you are below what you're designing to, so design temperatures are uh, the temperature at which you spend 1% of the year above or below. So it's about 90 hours a year above or below. And the hours are not in a row, usually. It'll be four hours one night, four hours another night, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but if uh, you got a really cold day and it was minus 10, and your house slid from the 70 degree set point that you have it at to 68. Is that the end of the world? Gotcha. That's what we're looking at. Supplement that with something else too, I guess. Yes. Cool. So use a space heater or uh, if you have a wood burner, uh, there's, there's lots of different options that you Fireplace, can do. That. Whatever it may be. Yep. Right. Okay. And on the hot side, uh, you really aren't going to see high temperatures for very long during the day. So here our design temperature is 88 degrees. So 99% of the year we're below 88. When it goes above 88, it's from two in the afternoon to five in the afternoon. And then it comes back down. So it's this three hour peak that you just need to be able to get through. Um, so even if the temperature in the house increases a hair, uh, you might slide one or two degrees. By uh, eight, nine, 10 o'clock, the house will begin to catch up again. Let me ask this too. Um, residential HVAC systems are, you know, they, it seems like it's kind of set, you know, one ton, two ton, three ton. Are there any smaller units coming out that, you know, because you've got these homes now that are designed to be very airtight, well insulated, they don't need as much. Are we, are we seeing more mechanical systems that are designed for that type of load? So yes and no. The yes is you're talking mini split heat pumps, which now dip as low as 6,000 BTUs. That's a half a ton, which we'll dig into what that means in a minute. Um, but your standard sizes, there's a handful of one ton units out there. The carrier's high end line now has a one ton unit. Um, but with mini splits and most of those units, they're the six things that we're trying to get an HVAC system to do. And a mini split heat pump can't do filtration very well. It can't do fresh air. Uh, it can't do humidification. Um, and it can't, 
distribute the heat very well. So right place, right time, it's not good at because it's just coming out of one place. It's not coming through a duct system. Unless, of course, you use a ducted mini split system to confuse the issue. Um, okay. But uh, uh, in general, it, the the 2-3 and 4-ton units for most houses in the country are going to be a pretty decent fit. And more importantly, if they already have a forced air system, you're not likely to move from a big central system to mini splits. It's better in most cases to just replace the system that's there with a better system. So um, you might just go from a three ton to a two ton after you right size it. Yes. Or you, you go from a furnace to a heat pump, which we'll talk about okay. in a little bit. All right. Let's go to the next slide. This is just showing those uh, design. All right, so here we've got most of the time. I think this is a good illustration to kind of show what we were just talking about to some degree. You know, you've got the, the spikes in the winter and in the summer, and then most of the time you're kind of in between the two. Exactly. So uh, the, the way that I think about that is it's like uh, it, the job of your house is to go 70 all the time. So picture your car going 70 miles an hour all the time. Your house is trying to hold 70 degrees, give or take. Um, so most of the year, it doesn't take a lot of heating or cooling. So you don't need 400 horsepower. So I talk about this as the Corvette in the basement because mm -hmm. your furnace is way too big. Um, you really only need to be able to climb the, the hills. So that's the cold winter days and the hot summer days. You just need to be able to climb those uh, without losing speed. You don't need to be able to accelerate up them. Uh, so you generally don't need 400 horsepower. You need more like 100 horsepower to get the job done. All right. Let's go to the next one. Um, we're going to thank our sponsors. We'll be back with the second half of our show with Nate Adams. And uh, we're talking about home performance and HVAC. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at HealthyIndoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. And I want to mention our most recent addition to the sponsor lineup, the Restoration Industry Association, now an association sponsor. Uh, always great to have them. We, we've done a lot of shows with Pete Consigli over the years, and um, they're on board now and uh, looking forward to doing more work with them. All right, let's get back to our PowerPoint here. And uh, we've got the gas pedal, uh, getting the gas pedal. You want to go back to the on-off switch, Nate, or you want to? Yes, please. Okay, um, here we go. So the, the way to think about your uh, furnace and air conditioner in your house, it's like having a Corvette, but you don't have a gas pedal. You only have an on-off switch. So it's either 100% power or no power at all. Um, and so if you, were, if you picture trying to drive down the highway going 70 miles an hour steady, if you, uh, you have 400 horsepower or nothing, you hit the gas and it snaps your neck back. And then you let off and you go forward. And it's, you just, it's a very unsmooth way to drive. No one would ever drive that way, but that's how our HVAC works. And if you look at uh, the chart, a temperature chart of a house, which you can do if you have an Ecobee thermostat, uh, they actually chart that. Or if you use an indoor air quality monitor that tracks uh, 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 temperature and humidity, you can watch the house go up and down, up, down, up and down, up and down. And what you want is for it to move smoothly. Um, and to do that, number one, you need less power because you don't need 400 horsepower to do the job. And number two, you want a gas pedal. So you want to be able to give it partial throttle and not have it be all the way down or nothing. So, all right. So how available are these variable speed units nowadays and what's the cost on it? Um, well, they're very available and they do cost more, but again, uh, 
uh, I'd love to see more HVAC contractors not mark up the equivalent uh, equipment too much so that they look more attractive. Uh, from seeing some quotes here locally for carrier equipment, uh, the difference between a two-stage, so there's uh, there's two-stage equipment, which is basically like 70% of full power and 100% of full power, um, mm -hmm. and modulating equipment is a couple of hundred dollars for the furnace. So it's almost nothing. Not uh, much. But it's a decent-sized step between the one-stage and the two-stage. Um, okay. So, go to the next slide, here, John. All right, that's the two stage, three stage, and what you mentioned the two stage. You want to talk, touch base on the three stage? Uh, the three stage is that's kind of an older piece of equipment. Um, that's the original modulating furnaces. They weren't truly modulating; they just had three stages instead of two. Um, yeah. And if you flip to the next one, there we now. Now we have the um, mod. Yep. So, so think of this like the uh, the knob in your car, where you can turn it up to a little bit of heat or a lot of bit of heat, or vice versa on cooling. So, most modulating furnaces vary between forty percent of full capacity and a hundred percent of full capacity. The very best stuff dips all the way down to twenty five percent. So now you have a really nice throttle, and some of these will be doing this in one percent increments. Some of them have four, five, six stages to get there, uh, but uh, regardless, the more stages you can get, the more you can match how much heating or cooling your house needs more of the year. And that improves mean radiant temperature uh, because you're constantly washing the surfaces with slightly warmed or slightly cooled air and the house becomes more comfortable. Which improves comfort, but it, but it also helps with your energy. So Considerably, yes. Dual uh, benefit from that. All right, let's go to the next so we don't need the Corvette. I think we did that. Let's go to, uh, we don't need a Corvette air leakage. All right, let, tell us a little bit about this slide. So this is helpful just for some definition. Um, so one BTU is a British thermal unit, and that is how much heat is contained or released by burning a match from head to tail. So it's, uh, it includes burning your finger. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and then uh, one ton, which is how heat pumps and air conditioners are rated, that comes from just an old school thing. We used to cool using big blocks of ice. So if you put one ton or 12,000 BTUs of heat on a ton of ice for 24 hours, you will completely melt that ton of ice. So that's why one ton is 12,000 BTUs. I'd never seen it explained that way, but I like it. All right. Air leakage is 30 to 70% of our heating and cooling needs. So obviously that's why you're so big on air sealing. Yep. Well, or even just measuring, you have to measure. If you want a good load calculation, you need a blower door. You can't guess at that. A, I can't tell you how often I've walked up to a house, thought one thing. Uh, I play a game with myself every time. I look at the client's energy bills, um, and I interview them, and I make a guess on the blower door. And my goal is to be within 500 points of what reality is. And sometimes houses surprise the heck out of me. Um, uh, so unless you test, you do not know. And you will buy the wrong piece of equipment and replacing that is very expensive. All right, let's look at the next one here, Nate. You've got a uh, typical HVAC equipment sizes in BTUs per hour here. Yes. So furnaces start at 40,000 BTUs, and they're generally 20,000 BTU uh, increments. So uh, smallest furnace you can buy is 40,000. A fairly typical one is 60,000. 80,000 is the one I probably see the most, and it is wrong in every single house by a long shot that I see it in. So there's lots and lots of comfort problems that come from that size furnace in normal-sized houses, so say 2,000 square feet or less. And then the larger furnaces you'll see are 100,000 and 120,000 BTUs. Um, on the other hand, the typical uh, heat pump and air conditioner sizes you're going to see are two, three, and four ton. So that's 24,000, 36,000, and 48,000 BTUs. The largest one you'll see is a five ton residentially. Um, uh, so that's 60,000 BTUs, which happens to be the size of a smallish furnace. Um, so in general, heat pumps and air conditioners are a lot smaller than furnaces are. Okay, next. 
and this is helping people understand uh, what it takes to heat or cool. So we find with home performance projects that we can get most 2,000 square foot uh, homes here in Cleveland under 36,000 BTUs for heating, so that's a three ton, um, and under 24,000 BTUs for cooling. Uh, so the smallest furnace is 40,000 BTUs, and we're getting most houses below that. Is that the right or the wrong piece of equipment then? Now, when you say you're, you're getting, that's after you do your blower door and your air sealing and your insulating. Yes. Okay. So you need, you basically need the smallest furnace out there pretty much after you've done whatever you've done on your 2000 square foot home. Correct. But the curse of 40,000 BTU furnaces is there. I don't know that there's any modulating ones that are that small. The uh, smallest common modulating one is a 60,000. Um, uh, so wow. you're, you're still in trouble on that. So furnaces are typically not a good option for high performance homes is what it ends up being. Okay. Um, so if you look at these bars, I've got the typical sizes of heat pumps and air conditioners stacked below the typical sizes of furnaces. And if we know that uh, heating and cooling loads are in the three ton range, 36,000 BTUs, that ends up leading you to the conclusion that heat pumps are oftentimes a better fit for tighter homes, even in a cold climate. Um, like there's limits to how cold of a climate you can go to, but this is climate zone five. Um, and in the contiguous US, there's climate zone one through seven, and then Alaska's up there with their own in eight. Um, uh, but uh, uh, it's amazing how well you can make these work. And we've now pulled eight gas meters off of client homes and converted them to being heated with heat pumps. Interesting. All right, let's go to the next one. So how much heat cool is needed within a year when the weather is within 40 to 80 degrees? So this is that, that main, you know, the area where we're at most of the time. Yes. So in the calculations that I ran for Cleveland, so it'll vary where you live, but this gives you an idea. Uh, 10,000 BTUs, which is less than a ton, so that's, uh, that's not very much output. That is enough to heat or cool your house about 40% of the year. So hmm. 38.9 to be exact with the numbers I came up with. Uh, so it, it doesn't take very much heat or cool to heat or cool your house most of the year. Now, so, let me ask this. Is, is this the typical home or a home that's already been insulated? This is, this is one that's been upgraded, but the, the numbers are going to be similar. So say instead of 10,000, it's 20,000 for a house. Uh, you're still talking way smaller than what a, a furnace is usually going to put out. Okay. All right. Let's go to the next one. So how much heat or cooling is needed within a year when the weather's within 20 and 90 degrees? So that will cover the like 20,000 BTUs on a house that has a 36,000 BTU uh, requirement on a very cold day. Uh, that 20,000 BTUs is enough to heat that house 95% of the year, heat or cool. Uh, so what this is trying to make the point of is that if you're going to load match what the house needs, you really need smaller equipment or you need modulating equipment so that you can improve the mean radiant temperature, all the, the average surface temperatures in your house so that it's more comfortable. All right, next Load matching with various HVAC equipment here. So let's let's talk briefly about this one here, Nate. So this is comparing different types of HVAC uh, in that house that I was talking about. So 36,000 heating, 24,000 cooling. So if you have an 80,000 BTU furnace, that is going to match what you need uh, heating-wise in your house 0% of the year. Um, for that to be required in this house, it's probably going to be talking 40 or 50 below. If we're getting that cold in Cleveland, um, we, we're probably going to have other worries. Um, yeah. That's that's pretty intense. We have seen 20 below, but it's one or two hours we saw it for. Um, so then say you right size it and you use a three ton single stage heat pump. And I'm oversimplifying here too. I should mention uh, heat pumps as it gets colder lose output. So you have to be paying attention to that. But let's just say for argument's sake, when it's six degrees out, your three ton heat pump is putting out three tons. That means it is right sized for your house 1% of the year. 90 hours a year, that will be the right piece of equipment. The rest of the time, it won't be able to match what the house needs. 
Now, if you move to a three-ton two-stage piece of equipment, now you're talking about a third of the year you can match. And then if you move to uh, a really nice piece of equipment, so a three-ton fully modulating all the way down to 25%, you can match heating or cooling needs about half the year. The other half is not as important then because you're talking, say, 50 to 75 degrees when uh, as long as it's bumping along a little bit, uh, you know, it's 400 horsepower is too much, but if you only have you know 40 horsepower, you can throw at it, but you only need 20. It's still not mismatched that badly, so mean radiant is still going to be okay. And then the last one is if you go aggressive and you size for cooling rather than heating, um, which I don't always strongly recommend, but this is an option, uh, that will let you match what the house needs heating or cooling wise about uh, two thirds of the year. Okay, next. All right, so don't heat pumps cost more? Well, yeah, they, I, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> so the, the, these are two very similar client homes. Uh, the one on the left uh, has a furnace. The one on the right has a heat pump. Uh, I really like these houses because they're so stinking comparable. Uh, they're built within three years of each other, 1915 versus 1918. Their square footage is almost identical, right around 1750. They both have single male occupants. Uh, we did the same basic project where we spray foam the roof deck in a walk-up attic and their final air leakage numbers came in really close. So we're under 2000 uh, blower doors for both of them. And I didn't put it on here, but their load calculations are very similar to one's 57,000, the other's 54. Um, and this actually will help indicate how oversized they are because with the, the, the heat pump house with a 54,000 BTU, uh, heat load calculation. We're doing it with a three-ton heat pump, and it used almost no resistance this past winter. Um, so it's possible. This All is right. So, go ahead. What was that, Joe? The one on the right, the built in 1918. Yes, that's uh, what I call the 1918 House of the Future on uh, EnergySmartOhio.com. Uh, you can go right. read a lot about that house. Yeah, you've got, uh, by the way, some great case studies on the website. Um, just excellent stuff and, and really walks you through it. So let's let's talk about this next slide here. Well, this is the cost to operate. Pretty darn yes. close. Yes. So the the furnace house, uh, now this is 2015-2016 uh, winter, uh, was $1,813.62. This is uh, gas and electric because it's kind of hard to break them out. So I'm looking at total operating cost. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, the heat pump house was $1,730 even. So it was about $85 less expensive. Uh, for the year. Now, I'm, I'm sorry to report that uh, with the cold snap this year, the heat pump house was more expensive to operate than the furnace house by $60.32 for the year. Hmm. Think I'm going to get sued? Nah, I think you'll be all right. But now what about the cost of the equipment to start with? So that's a great question. So if you're talking inexpensive equipment, of course, uh, it's not going to be comparable. But in general, uh, a good furnace with a decent heat pump on top, uh, which would be a hybrid system, versus a good heat pump are going to be comparable. So with these two examples, the, the furnace house was about $11,000. Uh, equipment replacement and actually it's, I hate that piece of equipment it was six months before I got there um, it's it, there's so many things wrong about it it's such a lousy install it drives me crazy um, the heat pump house uh, that heat pump was about thirteen thousand okay. dollars so yes there's a cost difference um, but uh, the, the, the furnace house still has some comfort issues because the equipment's too large. Meanwhile, John's house, the heat pump house on the right, is one of the most comfortable homes I've ever been in, ever, hmm. of All any right. age. Let's go to the next one. Load matching with various HV. Okay, this is. That was just repeating the points. Okay, let's go to here. Ironically, more efficient AC. I like this one. Ironically, more efficient ACs stink at dehumidification because they're better at removing heat than humidity. Tell us a little bit about this. This is, this is very interesting. Sure. So uh, there's two kinds of heat that air conditioners are removing. There's latent heat, which is humidity, uh, and there's sensible heat, which is temperature. Uh, when you get to more efficient equipment, you're not 
truly getting more efficient equipment, um, you're sliding the the difference between them. So really efficient equipment will move ten uh, will remove ten percent humidity or latent heat, and ninety percent sensible. The problem is in our climate. Uh, we need a lot of dehumidification. So out west, this is great because they don't need dehumidification. Um, but great any point. place, uh, if, if you are, if, basically if you're in a green grass client, or climate, uh, if the grass in where you live stays green without watering it, uh, that is a climate that needs dehumidification. Um, I see John Semelhack hopping in there and saying true. Um, so... Uh, uh, as you get to the more efficient equipment, they do more heat removal, but not moisture removal. And the problem is if you put in an oversized piece of equipment, the dehumidification only begins 10 or 15 minutes into the cycle. So it's, if it's oversized, it never runs long enough to get into dehumidification, which it sucks at anyway. Um, and uh, I went to visit a friend of mine, uh, an HVAC uh, installer down in North Carolina, and we went to visit one of his clients, the guy had just had oversized equipment put in that was this efficient stuff. And he had mold blooms throughout his house um, because the, the air conditioners were no longer dehumidifying like his old inefficient ones were. So paying attention to dehumidification is critical. And this is another reason to be sure that you right size. And it's another reason still to use modulating equipment because it will actually slow the fan speed down which makes the coil inside colder and the colder coil will remove more humidity. Uh, where if you have single stage equipment, it is what it is. It just does its job. Um, Are there times when you add separate dehumidification on your projects? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, dehumidification in spring and fall is really problematic because your air conditioner doesn't need to run. It's not cold enough or not warm enough to turn the AC on. Mm -hmm. So having separate dehumidification capability for air quality and uh, home health is critical. Um, the more that I'm learning from watching the air quality monitors that we have in a lot of our client homes, the, the more it's becoming really apparent that uh, humidity control is the key to a healthy home. Yep. Absolutely. Let's go to the next one. So we, this is just a couple of questions that I had, and I think I got most of these. How often are HVAC systems under or oversized? Uh, oversized a lot. Undersized seems like that would be a little uh, less common, if, if at all. Yeah, it's pretty rare. I, there's there's one fellow in town here. Uh, uh, so uh, shout out to Stuart at um, Central Heating and Air in Cleveland. Uh, he is big on uh, just jumping down one size. And so he may potentially end up with an undersize, but he gives a guarantee. If this won't heat your house on a cold day, I'll come in and change it out for free. Okay. And we asked about studies. We're going to look into that because you didn't know of any off the top of your head. Um, why aren't more system size? We talked a little bit about that. We talked a little bit about the smaller units. Let's go to the next one. All right, Nate, I think we were, we didn't think we would do that. Uh, we got through them all, huh? We made it. Yeah. Well, uh, th there's a few after this. The thing that I want to add, we actually have time for. I wasn't sure if we would or not. Let's go to it. Yeah. Electrifying everything. This is like your passion here, right? Yes. All right. Um, tell me why. So, this is the, the argument for electrify everything. So this is making everything in our lives run on electricity. So uh, Joe, can we agree that uh, running our houses and cars requires energy? Yes. Okay. That's fair. Unless you want to live in a cave without a fire. Um, <laughs> I mean, we got nothing. <laughs> right. Knock back to the, even before the stone age, because they at least figured out fire. Um, so if we're going to use energy, we really have two choices. We have uh, fossil fuel energy where you have to burn something and you have renewable energy where you don't have to burn something. So those are our two options for using energy. Uh, if we want to run on renewable energy, that basically means we need to run on electricity because we're only good at making renewable electricity. Uh, like okay. we can split water into hydrogen, but you lose a lot of stuff. Like there's a bunch of things there, but the key thing is electricity is what we need to make everything run on. If we want to uh, 
uh, you know, achieve true energy independence um, uh, and, you know, clean up the environments because we won't be burning things anymore. So whatever your reason is to come at it. Uh, but if we can electrify everything in our lives, we can make it run on renewable energy. Uh, and so it's, that's a second argument for heat pumps, which you already know that we like, and we do kind of crazy things. In fact, uh, on the HVAC school group on Facebook, I'm known as Mr. Heat Pump because um, I'm out there just posting data and, and shaking things up. Uh, uh, but uh, the yes, more we can electrify, the better. Sorry, go ahead. I'm guessing the gas companies don't really like you too much. Uh, they don't know me yet, but soon enough, yes, I'm, I'm probably going to have a target on my back. Uh, I hope you get that big, buddy. <laughs> but <laughs> if you want to learn more about that, uh, uh, my YouTube channel, which is Nate the House Whisperer, uh, I've got a couple of videos talking about how to go about this because it's now actually better. So heat pumps provide better comfort. Um, there's now induction cooktops rather than gas ranges because I've always been a cook on gas kind of person, uh, mm -hmm. but I like induction better. And it's also far healthier because number one, you don't have your face in an exhaust pipe, uh, right. which is what you do when you're cooking on gas. And number two, uh, if you use a range hood, the, the gases are coming off the, the food that you're cooking more slowly. So they're more likely to get caught by the range hood and taken outside with okay. induction than they are versus gas. Um, then we have electric cars. We have Mr. Elon Musk making really killer vehicles that are cool now instead of being glorified golf, uh, golf carts. Um, so there's all of these options now where electrification actually makes our lives better and we can make our lives run on renewable energy. What, what are we going to do with all that fracking gas? <laughs> well, I kind of hope it stays in the ground. All right. All uh, right. That, that's a math thing. Because um, uh, one important math point to make here is we saw from, it's just looking at two houses. My point is not to say in looking at those two houses, that's what's going to happen every time. It's just to show that it's possible. Okay. Um, but if we are looking at two homes, when we have a heat pump with moderately priced electricity at 13 cents a kilowatt hour versus 30 and 40 year lows for natural gas, and we can make those comparable in operation cost. What happens if uh, we start exporting more natural gas, which we're in the process of right now, and natural gas prices go up? What if we get a political regime that comes in and decides to keep it in the ground is what we're going to do, and now all those frack wells get capped? Um, is it going to happen? I don't know, but it might. Uh, there's risk of uh, energy costs going up for natural gas, where electricity, because it's uh, making it with sun and uh, well, solar and wind, is now the least expensive way. The odds are the cost of electricity is going to go down over time, not up. Well, and maybe we'll uh, move that gas over to producing electricity like that's been happening anyway. Um, yeah. You know. They're using Just the backup plants, you know, versus coal for electric production. So I, I think it's an interesting concept. Uh, anything further here on this? We got another slide. There we go. Fossil fuel energy or renewable energy. Uh, That's what we just clicked through. It's kind of what we were just talking about. Nate, always a pleasure. I, I really enjoy uh, talking to you and uh, put the home comfort book up there. It's a great thing. Um, the next time we talk, we're going to talk a little bit more about insulation because I, I think insulation is another topic that people get kind of confused on. I know you uh, home performance guys are very familiar with insulation and, and very knowledgeable about it, but I don't know how many IAQ people are as familiar with insulation and the different issues, the pros and the cons of insulation. Uh, but I, I tell you, I really enjoyed speaking more about HVAC in more detail with you here today. Is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Uh, I think that's it. Um, uh, shocked. I can't the believe slide we there. We made it. Yeah. So 1259. Good job, man. Excellent. Here's some great uh, information on the, on the web, free chapters and blogs of the home comfort book. So you can either buy it for, what is it? 1795. That's pretty reasonable. For the digital's 1599 and the, uh, the print is 3699 uh, on Amazon. Not so. bad. Um, you can get those at Nate the House Whisperer. Uh, go to his YouTube channel, Nate the House Whisperer. Uh, he's got project case studies on Energy Smart Ohio. That's where I was 
looking at some of those case studies. Excellent stuff. If you if you got a little, you know, uh, maybe a little a little behind on on following what we were talking about today, go right in and look at the case studies he's done, especially. If you're looking at the uh, air sealing and the insulation part, uh, I think they and also just evaluating using the thermal imaging and and uh, blower door testing, I think you do a great job uh, of of laying that all out real nice. A lot of graphics on Energy Smart Ohio, and there's Nate's email. So this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Nate Adams, for part two. We'll be back with part three, probably about another month. Nate, let this sink in, um, and it's always great to have you. Likewise, Joe. Thanks again. All right. And also want to say thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. He'll be writing a blog on this particular episode when he gets back. Uh, my engineer at the controls, John, you got to have faith. And most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners and, and our advertisers and sponsors. Um, we've got another one coming on next week. I won't tell you now who it is yet, but uh, that's coming along very nicely. We'll be back next Friday. By the way, we've got Bob Krell joining us next week. Um, Bob is Healthy Indoors Magazine, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming Maine Indoor Air Quality Council conference. Bob's going to actually be doing some uh, live streaming of that particular conference. So I uh, look forward to talking to Bob and we're going to try and get one of the speakers from that conference to join him right now. I've got, uh, I'm trying to get a builder on who does some really interesting stuff, but I uh, haven't quite nailed that down, but we'll send that out in next week's emails. Thanks for joining us this week and please come back next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.